Well, it is great to be back with you guys tonight as we begin um, section eight of J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer. And I trust that you've been blessed by each of the lessons that we've had so far. And for the listener, if you've been following along online in our series, I hope that the Lord has used these studies to uh, bless your prayer life and enable you to come uh, closer with uh, with God and, and maybe even get saved if, if that applies to you. But we're grateful for you to be here with us tonight, listening at some point in the future. We're going to be in section eight titled Advice to the Unsaved. Um, before we begin, of course, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. But after I pray, I would like somebody to read Hebrews 12 verses 14 through 17. Can I get a volunteer for that? Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. I'll read it. All right, Alan, thank you so much. Let me pray, and then Alan will read that text after, after I'm done praying. So let's go to the Lord. Father, I pray, I pray that every person here tonight knows you as Father in heaven, and that they have come to repent of their sin, surrender their life wholeheartedly to your Lordship, and to experience the fullness of life that only you can provide through faith in Jesus Christ, and that the Spirit has poured out those living waters into their souls that they have drank deeply from the Spirit's outpouring of living waters, and that as a result, they have become more and more like Christ up to this point in their life. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to perfect that work you began in them as you've promised to do in Scripture. We thank you for the privilege that it is to study tonight, to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider counsel that this faithful man that you raised up some really almost... uh, 150 years ago now uh, that we consider his counsel to those who don't know you and Lord that we as those living all these years in the future from Ryle when he wrote this may we heed this counsel so that when we encounter those who don't know you we might be able to point them to Christ that they might come to be forgiven of their sins and come to experience the sweetness that is communion with you As we who have been created in your image come to know you, Lord, we ultimately fulfill that of which we have been created for, which is to know you and enjoy you forever. Pray that even now as we begin this study and as we leave this place tonight, I pray that 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 communion that we have with you would be even more sweeter than it was before this study, that you would use this as a means of grace to draw us to yourself and to put wind into our cells to serve you wherever you've called us. We love you, God, and we commit this evening to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Alan, go ahead and read that for us, please, and we just encourage you guys to have your Bible out and open and following along. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, 
lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Mm-hmm. What do you think that text is is saying? What do you think the takeaway is from this little section here in the letter to the Hebrews, particularly verse 17? Esau, he sold his own birthright for a single meal, verse 16, but verse 17. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What's the author saying there, do you think? Just as we begin, this is a very important thought that I want us to have as we dive into this section of Ryle's work, because... This is a sobering reality that unbelievers could potentially face, and many of which are already facing even now in their unbelief. No place for repentance, though it was sought for with tears. Well, let me just say this. Um, it may be a, a tough text to grapple with. This is what I wrote down, and, and this was after reflecting on the passage and a few commentaries and, and really trying to find a text that would set us in the right direction for our time together tonight. Um, th- this thought really hit home for me, and I, I pray it will for you too, especially as we consider those in our lives who we know who are not believers. I wrote here that... If there's anybody here tonight or listening to this recording that has had continual exposure to the gospel and to the truth of God's word, but still refuses to surrender to his lordship through repentance and faith, then I urge you to heed the advice that you will hear from Ryle tonight. You do not want to find yourself in the place of Esau as described in Hebrews twelve seventeen. And what is that state? It's a state of unbelief to the point where repentance is no longer possible. Repentance is nowhere to be found. You've had exposure to the truth. You have had continual opportunities where God has put it on your heart. I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. But you know what? Ah, I think I'll just live life my way. I don't want to surrender to the Lordship of God. I don't want to be the creature he's called me to be. I want to be my own God. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And my friends, the reality is simple. There comes a point in every unregenerate, every lost person's life where as they experience it in time, if they don't come to respond favorably to the gospel and to the truth that God has revealed to them, They'll never be saved. They will never repent. They will never turn to Christ. We don't know when that place is. Only the Lord ultimately knows. And in his sovereignty, of course, he's orchestrated all of that for his own purposes. 
But from our experience, time-bound creatures, not knowing who the elect are, not knowing what the future may hold, the reality is this, that if you turn your back to the truth long enough, you will not find repentance and faith in the future. There's a point where the line is drawn, and that's it. You will be in your sins for this life, and you will spend eternity in hell for, uh, forever and ever. And that is a hard, sobering truth that as we go through this section of Ryle's work tonight, I want us to really come to grips with the fact that even right now as we have this study, there are literally people dying and going to hell. There are people who we know who, if left to themselves, will spend eternity separated from the goodness of God, subjected only to his wrath and everlasting hell. This should motivate us to share the gospel with those who we come into contact with, whether they be close family and friends, whether they be strangers, or somewhere in between. We need to be faithful to warning unrepentant and unregenerate sinners about the wrath that is to come. And I pray that as we consider this counsel, this is very pastoral, what we're going to read and study together tonight. As we consider what Ryle is saying to those who don't know Christ, I pray we would be better equipped to go out and take the gospel to those in our lives. That we would have a, a maybe a, a um, better approach, a better perspective on how we need to go and warn those in our lives who we know aren't saved. And for the listener, I pray that this would be of use to you as well. Let me start reading here. Um, I'm going to read those first two paragraphs, and then we're going to have time for some group discussion. Subheading, there is no excuse, and Ryle writes the following. Let me speak a parting word to those who do not pray. I dare not suppose that all who read these pages are praying people. If you are a prayerless person, suffer me to speak to you this day on God's behalf. Prayerless reader, I can only warn you, but I do warn you most solemnly. I warn you that you are in a position of fearful danger. If you die in your present state, you are a lost soul. You will only rise again to be eternally miserable. I warn you that of all professing Christians, you are most utterly without excuse. There is not a single good reason that you can show for living without prayer. Now, my question for us to consider and discuss as a group is this, in light of what we just read by way of introduction from Ryle. What is Ryle's point by identifying a prayerless person as a lost soul. Is Ryle suggesting that engaging in regular prayer allows a person to be saved? Does regular prayer maintain a person's justification before God? Explain your answer. What do you think Ryle's saying here? A prayerless person is a lost soul. What do we make of that?
I think because prayer is our way to like communicate with God. If you don't have prayer, then that's kind of like you can't really. Not that prayer is the only thing that saves you, but you can't that saves you, but you can't be saved without prayer because you can't cry out for repentance. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. It's a good thought. Any other thoughts on this? I have a few texts that might jog some of our thoughts here. Uh, I need four volunteers for this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Whit, you can take that one. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Hannah. Um, I'll take the third one. It's the longest of the four texts. James 2, 14 to 19. And then um, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Who wants to take that one? Mac. So, Wit, if you are in Ephesians 2, I want you to read those three verses, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no, man, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. All right. Now... Is prayer faith or is prayer work? Faith. Well, you have to have faith to pray. You have to have, okay. Well, we know unbelievers can, can pray, right? But true prayer that's honoring the Lord, it, it's an overflow effect of faith. It's a, work, it's a work produced by faith. It's a work produced by faith, exactly, right? So, what is Paul saying in this text? Is it prayer that saves us? No, it's faith, right? You're saved by God's grace through faith. Now, notice what he says, though, right? Saved by God's grace through faith. It's a gift from God, verse 8, and into verse 9. Salvation and faith are not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But here's verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, prayer does not save us. It doesn't maintain our salvation, but it does reveal that we have been saved. The saved person responds to God's goodness and kindness and the realization that they are ultimately dependent upon God for all things. That person always responds in prayer. That is the necessary response of the believer. Titus 2, 11 to 14 is going to provide us some additional Pauline context to this idea titus 2 11 to 14 it says for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Very good. So, again, um, just tr- we got the text right here. Let's trace the flow of it. What is it that brings about our salvation? What does Paul say in this verse or in this passage? It's in verse 11. The grace of God. The grace of God, right? So, our prayer is not saving us. The, the act of me praying does not 
cause me to be saved. God causes me to be saved by showing me grace, giving me the gift of faith, and enabling me to respond accordingly, right? But go on down to verse 14. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Well, we've already said that prayer is a good deed, right? It's a, it's a work. So if Christ has redeemed a people to be zealous for good deeds, a safe person is going to be zealous for what? Prayer, right? Among other works that we perform out of love for God and out of a desire to glorify him. But prayer, I like how Ellie put it earlier, it is the faith that produces prayer. That is a key distinction for us to make. I'm going to read from James now, chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. Hopefully, eventually, we'll be able to get back to the book of James on Wednesdays. James 2, 14 and following. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? What do you think? Can that faith save him? No, right? It's a rhetorical question. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Y'all answer it. Is, it. is it any good if somebody has a need and you acknowledge that they have a need, but you don't do anything to help them in their need? No, it's, it's worthless, right? It's useless. It's absurd. Well, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Expressions of faith in God that are devoid from prayer is not true faith. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can know the Bible cover to cover. You can be involved in ministry. You can be involved in humanitarian and community outreach service projects. But if your acts are not rooted and grounded in true faith, it's dead. It's not, it's not real. And of course, we know that prayer is a true, genuine expression of a love for God and of a faith that God has given as a gift of his grace. Lastly, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And Max is going to take that one. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Mm-hmm. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. 
All right, so two thoughts. Two main thoughts that I, I mean, there's a lot there, but two main thoughts that pertain to what we're talking about right now. We know that we've come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. Does the Bible command us to pray? Right? Yes. Everyone, everyone's nodding their heads. Yes, it does. Um, Jesus, Matthew 6, he says, not if you pray, but when you pray, this is a model for you to follow. It's presupposed. 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe it's verse 17. I don't want to botch the, it's one of the shortest verses in all the Bible. Yep, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Paul is an apostle. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was commissioned by Christ as an apostle. Therefore, Paul's commands are Christ's commands, right? And the Spirit's commands and the Father's commands. So Jesus said that you need to pray. Paul's saying that you need to pray. Peter, in 1 Peter, somewhere in here, chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's two apostles in our Lord, just in the New Testament. It doesn't include anything that we could look in the Old Testament, but easy chapter and verse references for us to go to. Prayer is a commandment from Jesus and obviously from all persons of the Trinity. So, if we take it to its logical conclusion based on what John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you claim to know Jesus, you're going to keep his commandments, which involve praying. Means as a habitual pattern of your life, your lifestyle was marked by prayer. That is that that is evidence of salvation, a lifestyle pattern of prayer. Doesn't cause you to be saved, but it's evidence, it's fruit of salvation. That's the first thought I wanted us to draw from first John. But there's a second thought that I wanted us to consider briefly. Second half of verse five and verse six. By this we know that we are in him. Here's the evidence. The one who he's The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Well, let's think about Jesus in regard to prayer. Jesus was a man man of prayer. He got away to pray. Right before he went to be handed over to the Jews and the Romans to be crucified, we've got the greatest prayer ever recorded in John 17. So, based on what John's saying here, the apostle himself writing under the inspiration of God himself, evidence of salvation, walking in the manner that Jesus himself walked, is to be a person of prayer, to have a lifestyle pattern that is marked by prayer. So that takes us back full circle to our original question. What is Ryle suggesting about prayer? If you had to summarize it, out of the text that we just read, out of everything that I've said and blabbering on and on and on, as my, as my wife sometimes liked to say, um, what's the takeaway? So he's not saying that prayer saves you. He's saying that, like Ellie said, if you're saved, you should be praying. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not, then you are lost. Mm-hmm. If you're not feeling like compelled to pray, then something's not right. Yeah. Now remember, sometimes prayer doesn't just happen easy. So, like if there's days where prayer feels like it's work, it's because it it's work. We're sinful. 
Um, we're not fully conformed into the likeness of Jesus. There's going to be days where you want to pray more than other days. But here's the key. It is going to the throne of grace, trusting that in doing so, you're honoring the Lord, you're being obedient to his word, and because God is so kind and so gracious, you will be revived in your soul through the act of prayer. It's been well said that prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Prayer revives the soul. It rejuvenates you spiritually. It's a means of grace God has given to his people to express dependence upon him, to glorify him, and also for us to be changed, for us to be positively impacted by prayer. I wrote here too, just a a pithy little one-liner, saved people are a praying people. And that's a very easy way of summarizing what Ryle's saying here. Saved people are a praying people. There's your next sign. I mean, (laughs) if we ever get access to that sign, I think that would make a great addition for sure. Um, I mean, what do you guys have any thoughts here? Um, any any other comments before we move on? This is convicting. I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves, and obviously the Lord knows our prayer lives are oftentimes not what they should be. It's hard, right? It's extremely hard to pray. So my question for you tonight is not. Do you pray for an hour each and every day? My, my, my question is simply this. Do you pray at all? We all are at different levels of our sanctification process. We all have room for improvement. I don't want to beat you guys over the head and make you guys feel like you're not, um, you're not honoring the Lord or you're not where you need to be as Christians, like you're some subpar Christian. I don't want you to feel that way. But... In keeping with what Ryle's saying and in keeping with what we just read together and considered from God's word, my question for you to answer, you don't have to answer it out loud, but do you pray? Not when you have to pray, not over a meal when you're in public, not at church, not when you're around your friends and you want to seem like you're a spiritual-minded person. I'm talking about when it's just you when no one else is around, when mom and dad's not around, when you're not at church, when you're not with friends you're trying to impress, do you pray? It's something we all have to come to terms with before the living God. But we move on now. There are two paragraphs at the bottom of page 16, and then there is a paragraph right at the top of page 17, so a total of three that I would like three volunteers to take, and then we're going to pause after that for another time of um, discussion. Would somebody like to take that first paragraph on? All right, Michelle, you'll start. It is useless. That's where you'll read. Um, who wants to take the second paragraph right at the bottom of page 16? <laughs> Hannah, and then Whit, go ahead and take the top on page 17. <clears throat> Whenever you're ready, Michelle. Very good. 
It is useless to say you have no convenient place to pray in. Any man can find a place private enough if he is disposed. Our Lord prayed on a mountain, Peter on the housetop, Isaac in the field, Nathaniel under the fig tree, Jonah in the whale's belly. Any place may become a closet, an oratory, a Bethel, and be to us the presence of God. With that top paragraph, please. It is useless to say you have no time. There's plenty of time. If men will employ it, time may be short, but time is always long enough for prayer. Daniel had affairs of a kingdom in his hands, and yet he prayed three times a day. David was ruler over a mighty nation, and yet he said, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray. When the, when time is really wanted, time can always be found. Mm. So there's some observations I just want us to make. Um, I guess I was a little bit ahead of myself. My next discussion question is not for a few more paragraphs, but um, I do have just some thoughts and would welcome any thoughts that you guys may have by way of analyzing this portion we just read. In regards to time, the last paragraph that Witt read out loud, um, I found a quote from Martin Luther. I've heard it before, and if you listen to the sermon that I sent out in this weekly email from Paul Washer, he actually quotes this um, in his sermon. Luther was, was quoted as saying this at one point in his life. He said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? I'm swamped. Let me take three hours out of time that I can be doing or that I can be using to do all these other things that I need to do. And let me just get along with the Lord for some, for some it's hours, three hours here. I could be getting X, Y, and Z chores done. I can be doing X, Y, and Z acts of ministry. But instead of using three hours for those things, I'm going to use three hours to get myself right with God and get prepared for all of these chores and all of these tasks that he's put in front of me to be a good steward of. That is a really powerful reminder for us that our attitude should be that we can't do anything without the grace of God. We cannot do anything in this life without God sustaining us and upholding us through it. And we need to be reminded of that. Prayer reminds us of our limitations. It reminds us of our dependency upon him. So my encouragement to you and to me um, is if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel bombarded with life, chores, work responsibilities, ministry responsibilities, whatever it is that you're doing, when you feel overwhelmed and bombarded, that is the time that you most need to draw near to God. That is the time when going to God in prayer is most essential because he will give you the grace to sustain you in the busyness of this life, the stress and the trials of this life. When I was at Southern a few weeks ago, right at the beginning of my two weeks on campus, one of the professors said this. He said, let me advise you guys who are going to be here for two weeks to really make sure you're praying as you go through these next two weeks, because you're going to feel overwhelmed. You're away from home. You've got ministry things going on um, that you aren't there to oversee in your ministry context. You might even get some phone calls or emails while you're away that just amplifies the stress of being here for two weeks. 
you need God's grace now more than ever so you can have a quality two weeks here on campus and so you can trust that all those details back home in your ministry context will be taken care of by our sovereign God. And that's really the essence of what Ryle and what Luther and that quote that we just considered together are saying. When life gets busy, pray more. When life gets more stressful, pray more. Make your natural response to hardship to be to go to God in prayer. Now, um, in terms of convenient place, and I don't have any notes here, but I feel led to talk about this a little bit. Um, When do you guys typically find yourself going to the Lord in prayer? What does that place look like? What is... What time of day is it? For me, it's going to the gym in my car. I've got no distractions. I've got nothing but the road. I don't have anybody coming into my office. Generally, Belle's not around, so I don't feel obligated to talk to her. Um, and it's and it's twenty five. Well, it's not. It's a privilege. I don't get the privilege. To the listener, I have a great marriage. <laughs> Let the records show. Uh, anyways, no, but like, I'm by myself with the Lord, right? And it's about a 25-minute drive from here to the gym that I go to in Victoria. So, play my cards right, that's 50 minutes there and back where I can just be. I can pray through requests. If I'm stressful, I can just vent to the Lord, lay, lay bare my thoughts and my heart. Sometimes I just sit there and just let the quietness of me being alone with God just resonate right there in the car. You know, our culture hates stillness and quietness because what happens when you don't have noise to drown out your thoughts and your emotions? You're faced to confront them head on, Right? Sometimes that is just as effective as articulating them. Sometimes just getting alone in the presence of God, in the quietness of your own soul, letting yourself come to grips with what's in your heart and what's on your mind, and then turning that over to God. What about you guys? Do you all have any place or time or location that you go to for prayer? Good. Any other insights you guys feel led to share with the group? That's your prayer. Like right before I'm about to go to sleep, like in my bed, because then it's quiet and you don't have like your phone on, and like you're trying to go to sleep, and then all the thoughts come into your head, and you're like, and you just pray. That's usually when I do it. Yeah. Yeah, I I usually do it. Like, I mean, we all pray at night, and sometimes I'll just like. Oh, nice. 
another thing I'm gonna bring that just came to my mind is whenever, so like I park on one side of the campus and I can walk to the complete opposite side. Mm-hmm. So when I'm walking all the way to Vandal, I'm praying that like I'd be prepared for the day and I'd be prepared for like the interactions I'm gonna have with people. That's good. Especially if I know that I'm like <laughs> having a rough week with some people, you know. For sure. For me, <clears throat> it's in the mornings on the bus because it's quiet and like no one's doing anything and so it just gives me time to think mm-hmm. and then I remember life. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, we all have our, I think when we were at Alto Frio, talked about finding your mountain, right? Where, where is that mountain that you get away to be with God? Um, that's a, a good word picture. Seclusion, quiet, somewhere for me, we're all different, right? Find that place where I can get away and just be with God and be comfortable with him and be able to do business with the Lord. That's going to look different for all of us. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing the best you can to be intentional with your prayer life. And then this last point, again, not in my notes, but I just feel like just to touch on it briefly. Um, don't don't overthink prayer, guys. It's, it's really a lot of people struggle with prayer because they feel like they've got to give this eloquent, long-winded soliloquy of prayer, right? This just monologue. I, I've got it. It's got to sound perfect and I've make, got to make sure it's perfect in my theology and that it, it flows just right. Don't overthink prayer. As you grow in prayer, those things are going to happen naturally. Your your theology and your precision in words and, and your... Um, your ability to articulate yourself clearly to God, that's going to get better naturally with time and as you're further sanctified. But don't overthink prayer. You are communing with the God who has created you and redeemed you from the slave market of sin. Be honest with him. He knows already what's on your heart and what's on your mind and what you're going through. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. Be honest with him. Don't feel like you got to, man, like I, I really... I gotta really make sure that um, I use the right word here with God. Now, don't be flippant. Don't go to God like He's a cosmic Santa Claus or a genie or a grandpa, a grandpa in the sky. A lot of people do that. As long as you're, as long as you realize who you're praying to, and you have a humble and reverent attitude, be authentic with the Lord in prayer. Don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. God. And that's so, it takes such a burden off of you to understand that it doesn't have to sound right. Like just being honest with God. Is, yeah. I mean, personally, that's what I've noticed for myself. No, absolutely. And think about how revolutionary that was. You know, Jesus was the first rabbi to call God Father. And by virtue of our union with him through faith, we get that privilege to call him Father. Again, he's he's holy, holy, holy. He's righteous. He's rev. Or he, he's he's just. He is completely other. Right. He's transcendent, but he's still, in the final analysis, our heavenly Father. If we're in Christ, and that 
should draw us to him all the more. He welcomes us into his presence. Though we have no, we have no right or um, merit to go before him, the right and the merit was Christ, and it's given to us as a free gift. Should be all the motivation we need to go before the Lord in prayer. Any other thoughts before we continue? Well, I'm going to read the next two paragraphs and then open up the floor for discussion. Ryle says that it is useless to say you cannot pray till you have faith in a new heart and that you must sit still and wait for them. This is to add sin to sin. It is bad enough to be unconverted and going to hell. It is even worse to say, I know it, but I'm not going to cry out for mercy. This is a kind of argument for which there is no warrant in Scripture. Call ye upon the Lord, saith Isaiah, while he is near, Isaiah 55, 6. Take with you words and turn unto the Lord, says Hosea, Hosea 14, 1. Repent and pray, says Peter to Simon Magus, Acts 8, 22. If you want faith in a new heart, go and cry to the Lord for them. The very attempt to pray has often been the quickening of a dead soul. O prayerless reader, who and what are you? that you will not ask anything of God. Have you made a covenant with death and hell? Are you at peace with the worm and the fire? Have you no sins to be pardoned? Have you no fear of eternal torment? Have you no desire after heaven? Oh, that you would awake from your present folly. Oh, that you would consider your latter end. Oh, that you would arise and call upon God. Alas, there is a day coming when many shall pray loudly, Lord, Lord, open to us, but all too late, Matthew twenty five eleven. When many shall cry to the rocks to fall on them and the hills to cover them who would never cry to God, Luke twenty two thirty. In all affection, I warn you, beware lest this be the end of your soul. Salvation is very near you. Do not lose heaven for want of asking. That's what the writer of the Hebrews was getting at back in Hebrews twelve seventeen, is it not? Lord, I need salvation. But it's too late. Salvation, repentance, faith, it's nowhere to be found. Hills, cover me, protect me from the wrath of God. Well, you had your chance. It's, it's too late. If there's anyone here tonight or anyone listening to the recording who is feeling that prompting and that stirring within your soul that you're not right with God, that you don't have a true relationship with Him, that you haven't repented of your sins and given yourself to God and cast yourself upon Christ for His mercy and forgiveness, if that's you, turn to Christ and exercise faith in Him while you still can. Now is the day for salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. It's time right now to be saved. Don't wait lest it be too late. Now my question in light of this, this theme here and these two paragraphs we just read from Ryle is this. How many of you here tonight have heard this excuse given by an unbeliever as to why they are not a Christian? Here's the excuse. Show of hands if you've heard it before. I'm just too bad for God to ever forgive me. I'm too far gone. 
I can't be forgiven by God. I think we all have heard that to some degree or another. Well, in light of that excuse, and it is an excuse, according to Ryle and according to the Word of God, more importantly, if we hear that excuse, somebody that you know, well, you know, wit, that's great that you're a Christian and you're religious and all that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you, but God just could never forgive somebody like me. I'm too bad. I'm a lost cause. I don't have any hope of salvation like you have. How would you respond to a statement like that, to an objection like that, in light of what Ryle has just said in the two paragraphs that we read together and everything else that we've discussed? Mac? Uh, We are all born equal. Yeah, we're all born equal. So we're all equally what? Equally, Equally sinful, right? Equally unrighteous, undeserving, right? We're all equal. Born guilty. Born guilty, yeah. Born in sin. That's right. So, okay, so let's say that. Okay, so friend, I recognize that you feel that you're not worthy of God's forgiveness. That's true. Neither am I. You and I both are equally sinners, in the sight of a holy God, equally undeserving, equally deserving of his judgment and hell for all of eternity future. So we've established that after Mac um, gave us that perspective. Where do we go from there? We're equally undeserving of God's salvation that he offers in Christ. We recognize our undeservingness. We recognize our unworthiness. How do we how do we shift the conversation from there? I feel like we could go back to like what we said earlier about how like prayer doesn't save you, but how can you repent without mm-hmm. praying? Right. So you tell them. So so what do you, so what does that sound like to them? So so mm-hmm. I'm down, like you've you've gotten to the point, right? They know they're the they're the dreg of the world, right? They've got nothing to merit salvation. They've got nothing to get God to forgive them in and of themselves. How do we direct that conversation now? What would you say? Well, you could like refer back to the Bible and how he took like the worst people in the Bible, like the worst sinners in the Bible, and, and he saved them and turned them into something great. Right? And what did they do to be saved? Repent. That's it. They repented of their sin and they cried out to the living God in faith. And we know, theologically, big picture, God's perspective, if somebody truly calls out in faith, it's because God took their heart of stone, removed that heart of stone, implanted a heart of flesh, as it were. He regenerated them. He brought them to new birth. And then they've responded in faith. But them, not seeing it from God's perspective, being in that moment, being under the weight of their sin, being under the weight of their guilt before a holy God, all they know is, I've got nothing before my Creator. All I can do is throw myself upon His grace and His mercy and His love for sinners. That's it. And it's at that moment when they come and cry out to God in faith that He justifies them. He declares them as righteous. He forgives them of their sin because they trusted in the one that He has sent to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 John 2, 2. So that's what you do when you have somebody who tries 
to give the excuse, well, I just can't be saved. You don't understand how bad I am. You say, friend, I'm in the same boat myself. We have nothing to merit God's love and, and, and salvation and forgiveness. But here's the good news, friend. God is rich in mercy and grace. And he has promised that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Salvation is near to you. It's a free gift. All you need to do is cry out to him and he will receive you as one of his own. He will make you a dear son or daughter in Christ. That's what you do in that scenario, my friends. You see, the person who is savable from our perspective, again, not referring to God and his sovereignty from eternity past, we're talking about in the here and now, in time and space as we experience it. The person who is savable is the person who realizes their own unworthiness. The person who thinks that God owes them something or that they're so great and that you know God just is obligated to give them whatever they ask for, that person's not savable at that point in time because they're self-righteous and they're self-deceived. The only way they see it is if a preacher preaches the holiness of God. And that's right. Preaches the word. That's right. The truth and not, not the... You know, not the seeker-sensitive message, not the... You know, one of the examples he gave here is this in Acts, is Simon Mag- Magus, is how you mm-hmm. say his name? Mm-hmm. Magus or Magus? Magus. You know, he wanted to buy yep. the gift of the Holy Spirit because he saw the apostles casting out demons and healing people, and he wanted to purchase that gift mm-hmm. because he was a magician. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was doing it for deceptive reasons, and they told him your money perished with you. <clears throat> you know, they weren't they weren't sensitive and say, you know what, <clears throat> you can come however you want to go ahead and put the money in the pot; it'll be okay. Right. We'll we'll get to that yeah, stuff yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? <laughs> That's not important. They they told him. They said your money perished with you. Yeah, and you go repent. Of That's that. right. Yeah. Go repent. And and I think that's one of the famines in the church today is the lack of reverence and the lack of holiness because we don't want to offend people. I was at a Bible study the other day and a man made a comment whenever God's, whenever in the Genesis where it said, and uh, God said, let there be light. And he said, well, that was when God created Jesus. And they just continued on. And the study, and there were two pastors that were in that Bible study. Mm-hmm. Two pastors that were in that Bible study. And I stopped it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. First off, Jesus is not a created being. That's right. And that's not what that means there. And I told him, and, and, but the thing is, is that it's like, well, you know, they meant well. Well, no. That's how the deception, that's how the, the things get spread well, they didn't say anything against it. And so to me, I think, you know, when somebody, to me, if somebody comes to me and says, if you only knew who I was, then you would know that God can't forgive me. First off, that's real positive because they realize their unworthiness. Exactly. That's only the Spirit of God mm-hmm. can make somebody. Yeah. And then it's just like, man, repent. Yeah. Lay it. You know, and you tell them, like you said, you tell them where you came from and what God's done for you, mm-hmm. and you be open with them. 
because that means the spirit is drawing them in, and that means that they're that they're that they're seeking. They're like, no, I can't, I can't come. Amen. I can never be good enough. Like you're right, you can't. Yeah. So to me, that's the, the, when you preach the holiness of God, when you preach the truth of the Word of God, it is convicting. Yeah. When you look at how unworthy we really are and how merciful God is, it's, it's convicting. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, just this this little study here about do you yeah. pray? I mean, it's, it hits you right between the yes, eyes. Yes, it does. Like, it, I don't pray enough. Oh, I'm right there with you. You know, in fact, <laughs> just to make it anecdotal a little bit personal, I um I was going to the gym today and I I was tired. You know, I I wanted just to listen to like a Ligonier podcast or just something. Let my mind just kind of just chill. And I was like, you know what? No, you're about to go and teach. On prayer tonight, you need to go before God, and you you better be with Him right now, because this is the only chance you're going to get today to really get alone with the Lord. I mean, other than you know small prayers that you give throughout the day and whatnot. So it's it's hard. I mean, I'm I'm the guy teaching it. I'm telling you guys, this is something that you have to be disciplined. It's called a spiritual discipline for a reason. It's not because it's laborious in that um, it's 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 just a miserable thing to go before God. No, it's it's not that at all. There's going to be times where you want to go before God. It's going to be something you've been looking forward to all day, but sometimes you're going to be tired and you're going to have things going on and you're going to have to make the choice. No, you know what? I am stressed. I am tired, but I trust that God is a good father. And when I go before him, he is going to revive my soul and see me through whatever it is I've got going on. And that's exactly what happened to me today. It was a huge blessing to do that. And I would just encourage you guys, it's like when you read, it's like Bible study. Sometimes the greatest studies you have is when you're, you're kind of tired and you kind of want to just hang out, but you go to the Lord expectantly and he blesses you. It's the same with prayer more often than not. At least that's, that's been my experience. The other day I was reading uh, the Song of Solomon and I struggled. <laughs> and I, 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 was, I was like, today... I'm going to figure this book out. Today, <laughs> I'm going to figure this book out. And I read it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh my gosh I can't understand this. Just, I know, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 can't, I can't follow it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was going to go for a walk, and I looked up, and I did, on, I, I think you sent me some sermon audio thing or uh-huh. something. And so I just did a search, Song of Solomon, where Paul Washer was preaching Ooh. on the Song of Solomon. Oh, I was so pumped up after listening Amen. to him expound and teach on the songs. I was like, and I, I kept looking up at the skies as I was walking and thanking God, saying, thank you, God. Oh, man. Amen. Now I understand. But, but I was struggling because I was like, I'm not getting What this. do I make of this? <laughs> yes. I'm not understanding because, you know, that, that has always been a book that's troubled me yeah. because I am very literal. Yep. You, you know, I am very literal and I'm like, Okay, is he talking? Is this actually a woman? Yeah. Or who is he? You know, who is he talking to? And it, it was just right. Whenever Paul was explaining it, and then I started reading, and I'm like, man, this is. I mean, this is really good. And it's just a love song. I mean, it's a yeah. It's a poem about the love of God and His bride and His mm-hmm. and His people and and our our zeal for Him and the joy and and, and Him. You know, and it's just, it was just a really a, a good time. But I prayed and I said, God, please show me because I want, you know, how are you going to be a preacher 
if you don't understand, you, you know what yeah. I mean? I, I, you hear very few sermons on the Song of Solomon. Yeah. No, you don't say that's not a go-to book well, for I've, a lot of people. Well, another, uh, another example of that, you know, Leviticus. Who preaches through Leviticus? Well, Al Mohler's doing a series right now, so I've been listening to it, and I would have never thought I'd be so excited to go study the book of Leviticus. And I, I praise the Lord yes. that he's raised up godly men and women to teach parts of the Bible that are a little bit more hard, a little bit more, dare I say, boring at times to read. But when you get into those details, you find that God's got rich truth throughout his word. And for you his know people. that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit yep. to be able to bring out those points Yeah, about the garden and bring out the points. I was like, Dadgum, that is good. And it made me want to go back and read it again and so I could see and I was like oh okay I see what he's talking about right. here but like you said prayer Amen. and God answered the prayer I thank God because I was I was struggling and it's like please show me something you Right. Know, I, I need I need somebody because I've always just skipped over the Song of Solomon because it has been difficult mm-hmm. it, yeah it's, it's definitely one of those books that <laughs> there's been a lot of ink spilled to say the least uh, in interpreting it um, one last point before we move on to the next section here um, of chapter 8. I don't know if you all have heard or not, but we are going to have a evangelism ministry at FBC Edna starting in April. And that is going to entail us going to Victoria College, passing out gospel tracts. Um, I'm probably going to do some open air preaching. Um, we're going to do the same thing in Port Lavaca here in Edna. So uh, if you all want to be a part of that, I would encourage you as youth to, to come and, and prayerfully consider putting into practice what we're doing now. There is nothing greater than going out to random people and being a blessing to them, giving them a gospel track, having a conversation about their worldview, about their religious background, and, and getting them to the gospel. So um, be praying about whether or not that's something you'd be interested in being a part of. But um, moving on now to... Uh, the subheading, Do You Desire Salvation? I would uh, ask for two volunteers, one to read. Uh, there's there's just like a three-line paragraph and then a main one below that. So just somebody to read both of those. Um, Michelle and then Ella, you can read the, the paragraph right at the bottom. Go for it, Michelle. <laughs> Let me speak to those who have real desires for salvation, but know not what steps to take or where to begin. I cannot but hope that some readers may be in this state of mind, and if there be but one such, I must offer him affectionate counsel. In every journey, there must be a first step. Mm-hmm. There must be a change from sitting still to moving forward. The journeyings of Israel to Egypt to Canaan were long and wearisome. Wearisome. Forty years passed away before they crossed Jordan. Yet there was someone who moved first when they marched from Rama. Rama to Succoth. Succoth. When does a man really take his first step in coming out from sin in the world? He does it in the day when he first prays with his heart. Mm. In every building, the first stone must be laid in. The first blow must be struck. The ark was 120 years in building, yet there 
There was a day when Noah laid his axe into the first tree he cut down to form it. The Temple of Solomon was a glorious building, but there was a day when the first huge stone was laid deep in Mount Moriah. When, when does the building of the Spirit really begin to appear in a man's heart? It begins so far as we can judge when he first pours out his heart to God. What to do, and I'm going to take this section, and I'm going to hopefully read it with as much zeal as J.C. Ryle would have done so. Let's, this, is, this is going to be a blessing. This is my favorite part of the whole section here. What to do. And if you're listening, whether here or on the recording, this is what you must do in light of everything we've read and discussed tonight. If you desire salvation and want to know what to do, I advise you to go this very day to the Lord Jesus Christ in the first private place you can find and earnestly and heartily entreat him in prayer to save your soul. Tell him that you have heard that he receives sinners and he has said, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, John 6.37. Tell him that you are a poor, vile sinner and that you come to him on the faith of his own invitation. Tell him you put yourself wholly and entirely in his hands, that you feel vile, helpless, and hopeless in yourself, and that except he save you, you have no hope of being saved at all. Beseech him to deliver you from the guilt, power, and consequences of sin. Beseech him to pardon you and wash you in his own blood. Beseech him to give you a new heart and plant the Holy Spirit in your soul. Beseech him to give you grace, faith, will, and power to be his disciple and servant from this day forever. O reader, go this very day and tell these things to the Lord Jesus Christ if you really are sincere about your soul. Tell him in your own way and in your own words. If a doctor came to see you when you are sick, you could tell him where you felt pain. And if your soul feels its disease indeed, you can surely find something to tell Christ. It's the free invitation. And my question for us to discuss now and consider together is this. As demonstrated in the section we just read, how does the act of praying for God to save a sinner prove that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and that salvation can never be by our good works? Think about what we just read. What do we do? We cry out to Jesus to be saved, right? So if, if, if we've got to cry out in utter dependency and desperation for Jesus Christ to save us, how does that first off prove that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation? We're the ones crying out, but what are we crying out for? Salvation. So how does that show that God's sovereign in salvation? That's exactly right, Hannah. It is God and God alone who can open the eyes of a sinner to grant them awareness of their own sin and that their need for salvation can only be accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's he alone that saves. As B.B. Warfield said, it is not even faith in Christ that saves. Narrowly speaking, it is Christ who saves through faith. 
Faith is just the instrument. Jesus is the all in all. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the one along with Father and Holy Spirit who's absolutely sovereign in the act of saving a sinner. I want to read a passage briefly to you from the book of Acts. If you're taking notes or you want to follow along in your copy of the Word of God, follow along with me. Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 9 and verses 17 through 19. This is the sovereignty of God specifically in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and the act of saving a sinner as demonstrated literally through being sovereign over opening one's eyes and heart to salvation. Follow along with me. Acts 9 and beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, go on down. To verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. It's the sovereignty of Almighty God. That picture of those scales falling off of Saul's eyes is a picture of salvation, my friends. It's that moment when Jesus came into your life and sovereignly intervened, when he, when he opened your eyes to the fact that you have nothing to merit in the sight of God, that you have no way of saving yourself. He removed those scales from your eyes and you gained spiritual sight and you called out to the Lord in faith and you were declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work for you. His perfect life, death on the cross in your place and bodily resurrection from the dead. That is your story and that is my story of salvation illustrated by the sovereignty of God. What a beautiful and powerful picture that is here in Acts 9. An encouragement, I hope, to all of you who are in Christ. So that's the first question I wanted us to consider um, from what we had read from Ryle there. But there is a second one, too. How does the act of praying for God to save a sinner prove that salvation can never be by our good works? Think about it. If, if God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, and if we have to cry out to God by virtue of recognizing that we can't save ourselves, that only God can save us, how does that reality demonstrate that salvation could never be by good works? 
This is a little bit harder than the last one. Yeah, so in, in light of the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that God and God alone can save a sinner, or, and, and God and God alone must be the one to save the sinner, and that our only way of responding to our helplessness before God is crying out to him in faith, how does that reality show that there cannot be any good works associated with our salvation, that we're not saved by good works? but it's all of God. You can bring nothing, nothing that's worthy of, uh, I mean, nothing of any merit, nothing of, like you're asking is how does that, yeah. is that you have nothing to bring. That's, that's, that's it. I mean, think about it, guys. And this is going to be very helpful if you do run into people who believe that it's either, you know, work, it's, it's works, you know, the Muslim. I've just got to do more good works than bad works and, and I'll experience salvation. Or Roman Catholicism, part God's grace, part my own effort. Whether you're witnessing to somebody who believes that it's all of works or witnessing to somebody who believes that it's part God's grace and part of our works, this reality is crucial to demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty and salvation and that, it, and that salvation could never be by works. Here's the reality. If God and God alone is the one who has to save the sinner, then why on earth would we think that we could contribute anything to the act of salvation, as Alan just said? The question kind of answered itself. Um, let me read you a few texts that demonstrate this. Romans 9, 15, and 16. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy, who wills or runs. God, I, I want to be saved. I'm going to do everything that I can. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. I'm going to just pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to do it. More good works than bad works, or a combination of God's grace and good works. Well, that's just not what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what you try to do to merit or earn salvation. You can't. Salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. It's God's sovereign right to save whom he pleases, when he pleases, and how he pleases. He's sovereign over all of it. There is no works associated with the act of being saved. Of course, we know from Ephesians 2, we read that earlier, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift of God. And last text from Romans as well. This is a good text for our friends who believe, particularly those who self-identify as Christian, that believe salvation is a combination of works and God. Romans eleven six. But if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What is grace? Someone define grace for me and for the listener. Yeah, getting something you don't deserve to receive, right? So listen to what Paul, I mean, very simple. He says, if salvation is by grace, if salvation is getting something that you don't receive, that you don't deserve to receive, then salvation is no longer on the basis of works because if it were, then grace would no longer be grace. There you go. I mean, I don't know how you I don't know how you argue with something that clear. There can't be any works involved in salvation. It's so, it's so simple. But, like, I'm thinking back to, like, before I was saved. Like, it didn't make sense to me. And I didn't sit there and question it. I just was completely uninterested in it, honestly. But, like, it's so simple. It's so simple. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with us. That's right. Yeah, you're, when you cry out in faith, it's because God's already done a work in your heart. You're just responding to the work he's already done in your, in your heart. You're responding to regeneration. So those were, the, those were the two questions I wanted us to consider, and I hope that that was eye-opening. As Hannah just said, I mean, it's, it's so simple. I, I'm going to respond to the inner prompting right now. First uh, Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Hannah, this is God's word agrees with you. So you were on the right track. Salvation really is very simple. Listen to all, in fact, the same guy who wrote that in Romans wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. He says, the word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe." For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brethren. Look at look around. There's not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. We're just average, some of us below average compared to the rest of the world. Consider your calling. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why foolishness? Why weakness? Why unimpressiveness? Why has God done all of that? Verse 29, conclusion, so that no man may boast before God. That's why. God chose the things that to the rest of the world are utter foolishness, unimpressive, weak. And God uses those weak, foolish, unimpressive vessels like you and me 
to bring him glory and so that no man may boast in his sight. And he brings down the strong and the noble and the wise and the powerful. Some, it's true, there are Christians who are very smart, very impressive by worldly standards, wealthy, but not many. That's what Paul says. Not many of those are part of God's kingdom. Most of us, we're just average, maybe a tick below average by worldly standards. But God chose us for his own glory and for his own purpose. So Hannah, to your point, it's so simple that it's foolish to the world. Any thoughts on that before we conclude this section of Ryle's work? I was having a conversation at lunch last week with two people I sit with, and they were like, they just started asking me questions just about just Christianity in general. And they were asking questions that are like, at this point in like my walk with God, I'm like, why would you choose to focus on that? Like the the questions that really stump you if you're if you're not a believer or if you're really like a baby Christian, like you have not been following Jesus very long. And it just kind of like it blew my mind a little bit to have those conversations and be like, Well, I will answer your questions like the best that I can, but like let me just tell you I don't have all the answers and I like I never will. But just it was so crazy because one of the last bible studies i came to we're talking about how like what we believe sounds outrageous to a lot of people yeah and just if you're just to tell somebody like what we believe it just sounds crazy yeah who who would believe that you know they make fun of it on popular tv shows for a reason it's it's crazy it's crazy and that's kind of what this one guy was telling me like it just it sounds crazy, and I'm thinking, like, it really does. Like, mm-hmm. it just kind of blows my mind, like, whenever, I don't know, like, I remember being in that place where it did sound outrageous, and, like, the, the understanding that the Lord has given me now, like, I understood in that moment, like, there's only so much I can say, but in, and while I'm stumbling over my words to try and explain mm-hmm. this to him, like, there's only so much I can say, but, like, really it's not not what I'm saying that's doing anything here like it's Mm -hmm. all up to the Lord and what he's going to do in his heart that's right but I don't know this this is just reminding me a lot of those conversations that I was having like I'm proud of you for witnessing and doing the best you can and you'll find listen I mean there are answers we can give answers to any objection Uh, the probably the greatest mind in the history of Western civilization was a Christian, St. Augustine. I mean, his philosophy is probably most taken for granted in the Western world today, and people don't even realize it. But we, we use Augustinian categories and, um, and, and aspects of his worldview for anything. We can talk about that um, off the record because that's a long conversation for um, a different audience. Probably person listening doesn't care to hear about Augustinian aspects of, um, of of philosophy and worldview and such. But nevertheless, even a guy like Augustine realized, towering intellect, that at the end of the day, you, we can give sophisticated answers to objections, but you're never going to graduate from the foolishness of the faith. Even, even like, 
Well, well, listen. I mean, people want to explain away Noah's Ark and the Exodus and um, non-evolutionary creation and the sun standing still. They want to give all these natural, non-supernatural answers for things that are really uncomfortable and hard to fathom. But at some point, you have to just submit to the fact that this faith is supernatural in origin and it's foolishness because the crux of our faith is that the eternal God was born of a, of a virgin woman and he didn't cease to be God, but he also became a complete and true human. And he died and was resurrected from the dead. And he performed all these miraculous signs and wonders throughout a three-year ministry on earth. That's crazy. So even if you want to take away the other crazies, which there's a lot of other crazy tales and, and events in the Bible, you're still left with the most astounding of them all, the gospel. So again, a guy like Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, R.C. Sproul, the greatest minds God's ever given to the church, sophisticated answers to objections they never graduated from the foolishness of the faith and as you said hannah ultimately in the final analysis you can answer every question you can answer every objection but god's got to be the one to open the eyes and give them a heart to believe and that's all that matters at the end of the day so you just be diligent to speak the truth yep be faithful to the truth and you leave the results to god can't do anything to save them god's got to be the one to do that well, we have just one last small section here, and then we will transition into our time of group prayer. Uh, two volunteers uh, to read. I think there's the top two paragraphs, um, total of six lines. Ellie's going to take that. And then the it's really three paragraphs, but the third paragraph's like two sentences. So somebody to read just the rest of that page. Wit. Ellie, take those first two. Because you feel unworthy, wait for nothing, wait for nobody. Waiting comes from the devil, just as you are. Go to Christ, the worse you are, the more need you have to apply to him. You will never mend yourself by, stay, by staying away. And wait, take the rest of that page, please. Fear not, because your prayer is stammering, your words feeble, and your language poor. Jesus can understand you, just as a mother understands the first lispings of her infant. So does the blessed Savior understand sinners. He can read a sigh and see a meaning in a groan. Despair not, because you do not get an answer immediately. While you are speaking, Jesus is listening. If he delays an answer, it is only for wise reasons. Mm. And to try, if you, are, if you are in earnest, the answer will surely come. Though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. O oh, reader... If you have any desire to be saved, remember the advice I have given you this day. Act upon it honestly and heartily, and you shall be saved. Amen. I think the conclusion, the application that we can take from that final word from J.C. Ryle is this. Be diligent in your prayer. Don't lose heart. Press into the Lord. 
remain faithfully committed to drawing near to his throne of grace and trust that he has a good and perfect purpose in how he goes about answering or not answering the prayer. As he says here, if he delays an answer, it is only for wise reasons and to try if you are in earnest to see if you really care about what you're praying for. So two applications in our prayer life. May we be steadfast in prayer. May we be expectant in prayer. May we continually draw near to God's throne of grace, trusting that he has a good and perfect plan for how he chooses to answer or not answer our prayers. And then, of course, as it pertains to the unbeliever, and I trust everyone here tonight is a believer, so for the listener, if you're listening and God has put it on your heart that you don't know him, you truly have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I leave you with the way that Ryle concludes this section. If you have any desire to be saved, heed the advice that's been given to you from this section and act. Cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your life of rebellion and autonomy and surrender yourself to God and find rest for your soul. You shall be saved if that be your response. Appreciate you for joining us tonight in our study of this portion of J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer. And Lord willing, I hope you'll join us for our next study. God bless.